Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Miss Independence podcast. I'm so excited to be back here for a second episode of the season. And before we introduce today's topic, I just wanted to talk to you guys and give a few announcements for um, housekeeping. Uh, so the first one is, if you haven't already, I would encourage you to hit the subscribe button on this podcast so that you can be regularly updated when all the new episodes come out. And if you um, feel like this podcast would benefit somebody else, I encourage you to share it so that they can be enlightened with this information as well. And if you haven't already, uh, please go over to the Miss Independence podcast social media. We are on Instagram and TikTok under that uh, username. And uh, subscribe to those pages for some additional weekly content uh, or daily content. And yeah, I think that those are the only announcements I have. Um, Really pumped for this episode. We are going to be talking with Amy Capolupo. Uh, she is uh, in the, uh, she works in higher education, and we are going to be discussing the higher education system and disabilities. So I am really excited for this episode, and uh, here we go. Do you ever feel like you're unseen or unheard because of your disability? Do you feel isolated and unsupported? Welcome to the Miss Independence podcast. From questions about chronic illness to doctor's appointments, dating, advocating for yourself, this podcast should provide information about the odds and ends of life for someone with a disability or chronic illness. We will talk about many different topics that I hope you can use as a resource to make your life better. I will share personal stories as well as having guests and experts come and share their own experience and expertise. I am hoping that there can be unfiltered conversations and assumptions that are debunked so that people who do not live this life can be informed about what life with a disability is like. I am really looking forward to interacting with you and hearing your experience. Thank you for listening. Well, hi, Amy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Abby? Good. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Um, could you give us a little bit of background on um, who you are and what the role of the university, what your role at the um, university is? Sure. Um, so my name is Amy Capalupo. Um, I identify as a person with a disability. Uh, when I was in primary schooling, so roughly K through 12, I had either special education services or resource room. Um, and they were partially for low muscle tone in my hands and then also for learning disabilities and then a couple of other things in there as well. And so my passion for this work um, came from personal experience. From there, uh, I went to college, right? That wasn't an easy journey either getting in, but I was able to go to school in a different state other than where I was because in New York at the time, you needed to get a special diploma to go into college. And I graduated with something called a general diploma rather than a regents diploma. And so I wasn't considered college ready in the state of New York. And so my options were to go into a technical school or to look at other universities in other states that didn't have that requirement. And also my parents were not there. I'm a first generation college student. So my parents were not necessarily in the spot to um, really understand payment for college, things like that. And so I actually first went to college on um, a junior ROTC, so junior 
military. And then when I got there, I actually got out of it because I learned about federal financial aid, uh, a different way to pay for school. And that happened incredibly quickly for me. So like within the second day of being in, at school, even prior to me really um, investing in that program or doing much with that ROTC program, because I thought, okay, I'll get here and then I'm going to sign up. I was in a junior ROTC program in high school. Um, but the person that my advisor talked to me about my bill and said, hey, you know, you can do these other things, federal financial aid. And so um, I actually had a high school teacher help me with that. And that's kind of how I got to, to college. And then I kind of just didn't know about accommodations, uh, struggled my way through until I sort of got forced into going to the um, what was then Disability Services for Students. Mm -hmm. And that was a really uh, good experience for me. I learned a ton about what my rights were under federal law, uh, what it means to be a person with a disability, to identify that way. And really, I started to learn that um, maybe I wasn't the issue, right? right? Maybe there wasn't necessarily something wrong or broken with me. But perhaps the system was built in such a way that I wasn't, it really wasn't designed for me to attain. And so that's the message that I, I still think a lot about. So that's a little bit about me. Um, I have, um, I'm a licensed clinical social worker now, so, and I've worked at UM for, I'll be going into, I'm in my 20th year. I just started my 20th year. That's incredible. 20 years. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And I'm sure a lot has changed in that 20 years. That's for sure. Um, so what, I know you had mentioned about your, um, the GED and the higher education, but could you kind of describe a little bit more about what attracted you specifically to the higher education system? Yeah, what attracted me to higher education is that I feel that higher education, there's so much possibility within it, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at their, you know, social systems, um, maybe things like uh, TANF, um, so temporary assistance, you know, for needy families is what it's called, or, mm -hmm. um, you know, other, like mental health case management or things like that. You know, higher education is really designed to um, elevate you still. It's designed to elevate you into something else, right? Mm -hmm. Usually that's here where you can attain um, middle class status, if not greater. And so that's very appealing to me, the ability to uh, better someone's situation. Yes, economically, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of fixed on that some of the time, but also emotionally, and, and for students to know what truly is available, right? Knowing what resources are is one thing. Being able to access them is different. And I want to say that we teach students, yes, these are your rights. These are your resources. This is how you can attain. This is what the structure is. I mean, there's there's factors that are still not, not great in higher ed, but it really is designed for upward mobility. And I, I like that very much. I think that's so great. And I definitely resonate with the... Um... Not only knowing what your resources are, but knowing how to obtain or attain or obtain them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I was just trying to think of the word because I, a lot of people talk about what resources should be available, but nobody really talks about the route in which you need to get them. I, in my personal opinion, so I feel like um, the university. Um, that's a good thing that like the university has an office to help with that transition yeah uh what percent um well i don't know because of uh FERPA if you can release this information but um in a general sense what in 
how much of the university um, utilizes the disability services, both uh, on a national level or just our campus? So um, on a national level, in fact, I just read an article today that it's actually 19%, huh? um, which is up. When I first started uh, 20 years ago, it was 10%, to put that in perspective. So That's you're twice. seeing almost a 10 percentage point increase in people identifying um, as people with disabilities in college. Mm-hmm. Now, when I look at the number of students affiliated with my office, meaning an affiliated means that they have at one point or another requested accommodations in their academic career. So I would imagine that there's still more like 19% of people on campus who actually have disabilities. But right now, the Office of Disability Equity is providing accommodation for, or has provided accommodation for, roughly 15% of the student body. Okay. That's um, a good portion. And like you said, um, it went up from, you know, the national went up twice. So I'm sure that the university Yeah, that is an increases. increase for us. As when I first started mm-hmm. here, uh, we were, again, we were, when we first started, we were about 8%. Mm-hmm. And then we were a solid 10%. And now we're roughly a solid 15%. I just think that's so amazing because I think that some people think that you have to have, like, an extreme disability, for lack of a better term. But yeah. that's not true. Yeah, it's not true, right? I mean, people, maybe there's a traditional model of, and I, I don't prefer this language, but um, they're called uh, high impact, and this is social security kind of language, but it would be high impact, um, low incidence disability, right? So that might be someone who is um, who has quadriplegia or maybe someone who's blind. You know, that's a sort of an, an outdated model. The majority of students that we serve um, are students who have um, disclosed uh, either they, they say mental illness or they say psychiatric impairment or mental health mm-hmm. conditions, depending upon the student. Right, right. That Yeah, that's an excellent point, too, that it's not just like the physical disability, it's the mental and emotional and like anxiety and depression as well. Yes, exactly. And so a lot of times now, the, the two largest categories in which we've seen growth. When I first started, the largest group of students that we served were students with learning disabilities, followed by ADHD, followed by uh, multiple, and then mental health was fourth. Wow. And now mental health is uh, roughly 46% of our okay. students. And then when you look at multiple, so meaning maybe someone has identifies as having ADHD and depression or um diabetes and depression or Crohn's disease and anxiety uh, were more like 65%. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, Yeah, I just, that's, it's so, when we open up the conversation, it allows for others to feel validated and you just open up the pathways for more people. Like we, I don't think we'd be having these conversations like when you first started at this job. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's amazing, really. Yeah, I agree. Um, what, um, so what are the standards set both nationally and by the state um, to ensure that individuals, individuals with disabilities have access to higher education? So that's a, a really interesting question and things are changing again right now. There's a, a at post-pandemic, there's um, a really good, very positive movement set in terms of not 
well, access, but an inclusion. I should say maybe not only access, because, you know, sort of the pre-pandemic, it was starting to occur, but the pandemic really sped this up. And what I'm, what I'm referring to is that uh, accommodations used to be, like, that is a sort of national set of best practices. You know, you provide accommodations for students with disabilities. And, you know, accommodations by definition are uh, changes to non-essential components of a classroom. Right? But when you break down that definition, non-essential components, if they're non-essential and they require a change, why are we doing them? Right? Right. So when you think about it, if I have to take a, if a student has to take their exam here with us, mm-hmm. that is a bit segregating. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? For and sure. So if they could take that test online and take it anywhere, no, again, there'll be some students that taking that exam in person and having the quiet environment here uh, is going to be exactly the right thing to do because being on the computer is not is not you know beneficial to them for whatever reason. It could be um, you know a condition related to looking at computer screens, or there could be a variety of reasons. But on the whole, you know, us having a testing center at this point, and we do have one, and it's it's nice in there. It's segregation, mm-hmm. right? It's, right, and it doesn't necessarily need to occur. Right. I mean, in some cases, sure. So when you talk about what standards are set nationally, there are standards that are set nationally, but are some of those standards still inherently discriminatory? Right. Now, our professional organization AHEAD has, has worked on changing those things and is, is now talking a lot more about uh, exactly what I'm talking about. You know, we changed our name uh, two years ago now, uh, from disability services for students, meaning that we were providing student services to Office for Disability Equity. And that, that change was in part due to the fact that students with disabilities don't necessarily need services. They need access. They need equal access. And they need, and, and again, equal being a misnomer too, but um, they need access. And we need to change our academic environment so that access is simply provided. We've always said that, but now we have more tools to do it. So... National standards, yes. There's best practices in place from professional organizations. Um, there's the ADA, right? Right. Two of the ADA in the University of Montana's case. And we, we do do those things, but now there has to be that sort of overlay on top of that. Are we truthfully being equitable? Are we being inclusive? So there's not great standards on that, but we're getting there. That's great. And uh, I think like, like we've already touched on, it's just by opening up that conversation and learning more from others and um, hope, I think we might talk about this later, but also like working the professors and other instructors into this conversation as well. Yeah, Uh, Who oversees the ADA protocols to ensure the students preserve the rights, both in your office specifically and the overall national government? So on, on the University of Montana campus, you know, we facilitate the process as far as who, in, in terms of accommodations for the students that we work with, right? We write mm-hmm. letters. Um, the student then is the one that enacts their rights. So the student is the one who takes that letter or emails that letter to the instructor um, and requests the accommodation. So that's specifically for, again, a- accommodations in, in general. And then there's also a campus ADA team. And they look at larger things on campus. So they're going to do more work with physical access and maybe some of these structural issues. And then beyond that, we have 
uh, legal counsel if something is challenged, right? And legal mm. counsel will help, given what the nature of the law is, what we did, how we how we did it, should we be doing something different? So legal counsel will look at that. And then in terms of who monitors this uh, nationally, it would be, there's a couple of different entities. You could go to, and again, there, it's a complaint-driven process. This is in the law, and if there's a flaw in the law, this maybe is it, but I don't still know a, a necessarily a better way to do it, mm-hmm. um, change things. And so if you feel like, if you identify as a person with a disability and you find that your rights are challenged or undermined or not honored under federal law, you can go to um, the, Office of, the U.S. Office of Civil Rights Department of Justice, or if you live in Montana, you can go to Montana Human Rights Bureau, or maybe even Disability Rights Montana. So those are those are legal branches that would look into discrimination. Oh, that's that's great that we have at least some sort of uh, system to help solve those problems. And I should include too under our legal counsel at UM, um, they're not under legal counsel separate, but also uh, made up of attorneys. Our Title Nine. That's, yeah, that's great that people have uh, an opportunity to voice their opinion and their complaints and concerns, for sure. Uh, what, pro- what strengths, and, what pro- what strengths and, what, and progress do you see currently in the higher education system in regards to the ADA, either at our, the university or just in general in the higher education realm? Yeah, so I'll go with strengths first and then and then progress. Um, the strengths itself is that it's, it's, it provides a really great foundation, right? The mm-hmm. ADA provides a, a wonderful foundation in which to uh, address programmatic access and physical access. So physical access being things like, you know, um, accessible parking spaces, curb cuts, uh, you know, grab bar heights and bathrooms, um, sink heights, things like that, so that... You know, again, if you are someone who has a mobility impairment or hearing loss uh, in terms of, you know, rooms that are wired for sound or things like audio descriptions or captioning, that that's occurring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the ADA doesn't say some of those by name, but states that access must be made. And so those are really great. And then programmatically, the ADA, again, doesn't isn't prescriptive in what kinds of accommodations uh, someone might receive, but it does provide how you determine what is reasonable uh, and from that determine how do you describe what is reasonable so meaning that programmatically when a student requests something from an academic course we have to look at a variety of things like so as an example is what the student is requesting is that going to negatively impact someone else yes or no is it going to cause an undue um, financial hardship to the institution when the institution's budget's viewed in its entirety? Likely no. Uh, and then the third thing, and this is where accommodations do tend to um, get challenged, is is what the student is requesting a change to something that's essential to the, the course material. Mm-hmm. So an example of that would be, and again, we don't have a lot of this, um, a student in a, a course that involves what some people would consider now more of a fundamental skill. So let's say there's a course that the ability to use addition and subtraction effectively is a required skill and it's actually being taught no it's not because that would usually happen in k-12 through 
But let's just say it was. Right. If it was, then then therefore it would be deemed essential and someone couldn't use a calculator, right? Because right. we're trying to teach the skill. And so a better example also might be a class where um, attendance is actually required. So a theater class is an example. If you're studying lines with someone, um, you may need, and the, the play is being performed and it's an in-person performance, you likely need to be there. Right. If you're in our diesel uh, program and that day you're supposed to be working on an, a physical engine, then and that physical engine is only you know available to you at the shop on, on campus physically, then you need to be at that office and, and working in that shop. Now maybe you can be in there different times. There might be all kinds of other things we could do to accommodate, but you still would likely need to be there. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that that definitely makes sense. And I think that yeah. even with COVID, um, that's, you know, like, that's kind of like what we're saying has changed. For sure. Yeah. And then in terms of progress, you know, I think just again, this, this focus really on like, beyond accommodations, right? It's, mm-hmm. while it's not in law, I mean, the law is going to be a, a lagging indicator. And so while above and you know, by, by what sort of beyond accommodations, you know, basically lessening the need for accommodation through education and training at every turn. That's the progress that I see. And I want to still say that the ADA, in its spirit and nature, like what it was truly implemented to do to provide equal access for people with disabilities, I think accommodations were the fir- was the first step in that process. And now the next step in that process is questioning why do we do this? Right. Yeah, we have to be able to know why we do it and why who it really benefits if it's actually benefiting the individuals individuals with a disability or if it's somebody else they're trying to make comfortable. Right. Yeah, that's definitely a really good point. Okay, so for the last the last question for this segment is uh, going forward, what do you envision for your students with disabilities and their success in higher education? How do we how do we plan on getting there, and what needs to be done to address the barriers in higher education in order to achieve those goals? We touched on that a little bit, but is there any additional thoughts you have? Yeah, I love this question. I think. Um, what do I envision for students with disabilities and, and their mm-hmm. success? Yes. Um, one, I envision an educational environment which does not require you to come to the Office of Disability Equity for what I consider foundational things. So, necessarily need to come to us for note-taking software, or for reading software, or for test accommodations, except in limited circumstances. You wouldn't need to come to us for flexibility with attendance or assignment deadlines, except for, again, specific circumstances, because we are focused on, so this is the next part of the question, how we get there, because our primary focus is education and training, and not just the Office of Disability Equity, but anyone who's working on inclusivity and anyone who's working on um, from a DEI lens, from a grand uh, lens of um, reducing microaggressions, anyone who's working on anything related to access and inclusion on mm-hmm. campus would be providing training and, and giving, basically infusing a cultural change around how we educate students, everything from payment processes to 
again, how you get your books to how you learn in the classroom around access. Right. And so how you get there, maybe we combine other offices, um, what barriers need to be addressed in order to achieve that, really examining why we teach what we teach and why and how do we teach it. Mm. And what is the utility in having things like deadlines? What is what is the utility to academic rigor in a in a way that is logistic? Mm. Right? Right. Like should you feel like going to college is you having to overcome something? No. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. But, but how did you feel probably when you graduate? Pretty successful. Good. Yeah. Yeah. But also like you would overcome something. Exactly. Yeah. That's... We shouldn't be part of that. You should not mm -hmm. feel like you overcame at the University of Montana. Right, right. Yeah, it shouldn't be an added stress. It should be a support. Yes, it should be. This is the way the world should be. I like that. Well, thank <gasps> question um who so who exactly is eligible for accommodations or ada accommodations and what kind of documentation is required for the higher education individuals yeah. so um you know most college is and universities are going to follow the ada definition of disability right mm -hmm. which is any physical or mental condition that substantially limits a major life activity. Major life activities are seeing, hearing, walking, breathing, learning. And so um, within that, you know, do you have a physical or mental condition? So I have, let's say I have depression, right? Right. Depression is something that needs to be, to, for, to rise to the level of disability, this would be a, a provider would have to say this. It would be expected so that you would diagnose this condition, meaning that it is expected to last six months or longer and be ongoing and expected to return, right? Right. So that person then has a mental condition, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're, so they've known they've had this their whole life or for however long. And then as far as documentation goes, so we're going to we're gonna care a lot more about the self, person's self-report than we're going to care about documentation, but we're mm -hmm. still going to request documentation. And the reason we do, so I wouldn't say it's required, but we're going to request it. In some cases, it might be required, right? And what might what might make it required is um, something that doesn't seem clear to us, or uh, you know, maybe something that's like has a higher level of a higher level of scrutiny. Meaning that we um, it would be hard to do it out of our own judgment, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, we get to determine disability, but. We still documentation is one of the tools we use to to determine it. So right. I like to get documentation in all cases if possible. And what documentation is required? It's pretty minimal, right? If you've got something that says um, the nature of your condition and that you're being treated for it, or just the nature of your condition, that will be good enough. Okay. And so we really try to make it pretty easy because, again, from an inclusivity perspective, if someone comes in and says you know, I haven't been in school, I'm 44 years old, right? Mm -hmm. And I haven't been in school since I graduated from high school, and the reason I didn't go to college to begin with um, 
was because I was in special education and I was told there was no chance. And now I'm 44 years old. I'm coming back because maybe I have a, a back injury now and I can no longer be a painter, as an example. Right. So I'm coming back and I'm interested in studying um, social work because I want to be a counselor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now for that person to get documentation of a learning disability, they may have to spend, I mean, we have a provider who does it locally for a reasonable fee, which is, you know, $350. But that person, depending upon their insurance, may or may not have the ability to get documentation. If they were to go to a licensed psychologist um, who does these evaluations called comprehensive neuropsych evaluations, it can be anywhere from $1,500 to $3,000. Oh, wow. And so if insurance isn't covering it. Right. Now, the idea of charging someone that much money to access these services is really not okay. Mm-hmm. So if we can take that person's self-report, and let's say by some chance they do have that IEP that they had in high school, even though it is 20 years old, we're going to take it. Okay. If the person needs something that we would consider pretty rudimentary, so they need a note-taker. Right, and the note takers mm-hmm. are done differently now. They're done actually. We could do a via Zoom, or they need extended testing time. Do they really need to get a three thousand dollar evaluation to use that when they're giving us a a pretty solid self report? No. Right. Right. Exactly. No. <laughs> so we're not going to necessarily request that. Now some places still do, and so we always tell students that like, look, if you don't give us something this may be a barrier for you at some point. So I would probably recommend to that student, especially if their goal was to be a counselor, that's six years of education. I would say, call your insurance, figure this out, because you may need this accommodation for different things. High stakes testing, universities that still require the GRE. There could be all kinds of things where you might need it. And so it's worth your time and money to invest in it. But I don't think it would be equitable for me to charge, or for me basically to what amounts to a charge um, for something like extended testing time here. That makes Especially sense. If I have other documentation. Exactly. No, that definitely makes sense. And especially going back to them maybe not being in college for like, or not college, but not going straight from high school to college, there is kind of exactly. a difference of like how things can progress. Yes, exactly. Definitely makes sense. Um, What, so I know we listed a few of the accommodations, but just for clarification, what types of accommodations are available? Maybe just like name a few and how often are the types of accommodations updated to fit the current higher education innovations and expectations? Sure. Um, so, well, I'll answer, I'll, the common, I'll just say what the most common accommodations are. Okay. Uh, most would be extended time on tasks, taking your exams in a quiet environment, uh, consideration of flexibility with attendance and assignment deadlines, and then, um, well, those are those are the most common accommodations, right? Right. And then from there, we have things like note taking and um, maybe textbooks and audio. Although now and now you can get more and more that way. And then a lot of students are requesting emotional support animals now as well. So, how um, do accommodations fit in terms of an updated? Um, higher education innovations mm-hmm. and expectations. Well, now we use Zoom as an accommodation. So as an example, if a student is gonna miss class, let's say someone, let's say it's two weeks before the semester ends, 
and the students in le- large lecture classes, and they break their leg, mm-hmm. right? Something happens, they break their leg. Um, they're going to be in pain for that first week, not really ambulatory, uh, and maybe come back that second week, but at this point, we'd have to move their class. It's like, mm, what should we do? Maybe we're going to move it, maybe we're not. Depends on what the student the faculty are talking about. But what we can do is we can provide, we can ask somebody else, we can have the professor make an announcement that somebody else, if there's somebody else in class, um, that's got their laptop, if they can just pop up a Zoom link and either live stream it to the student or um, record it and then just get them the recording, right? Mm-hmm. And we'll give them $50 for doing that. Right. So basically, for them going to class, setting up the Zoom link and doing it that way. So, you know, basically audio or, or video recording a lecture. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a new thing. We didn't do that prior to the pandemic. We had a robot that would um, sort of beam into a class and the student could interact with it. But we weren't necessarily utilizing another student for that kind of interaction. Right. And now we are. We don't have a ton of those requests, um, but that's that's a newer type of accommodation. A lot of times, you know, these accommodations are preset, right? They're, they're preset based on the environment. Mm-hmm. And so as higher education innovates, then we can innovate with it. And so I don't know that... You know, to me, the innovations that occurred are starting to maybe diminish a little, but I, I think mm-hmm. they'll return. And those those innovations were use of Zoom, um, diminishing expectations around, uh, or, or not having expectations around necessarily, or punitive expectations around classroom attendance, um, flexibility with deadlines built in. Uh, and, and those are the things that we can wouldn't necessarily require accommodations. Right, right, right. That makes sense. I definitely think that the uh, COVID-19, I graduated at the, I had like two semesters of COVID, um, but I definitely saw some changes for sure as um, that panned out. So that's that's a good thing that now Zoom's an option for people, not necessarily for just COVID, but just in general for their disability. That's awesome. Uh, what are the differences between the public education K through twelve and higher education standards set for the ADA? If there is any, sure. Yeah, there is. Um, so one would be, you know, K through twelve is is it's a free and appropriate public education, right? Right. So you school is free for you, and you will go. <laughs> like you, you mm-hmm. must go, right? Otherwise, you could be homeschooled. You have to. You have to go to school in the U.S. per law in some way. Right. Higher education, that's not true. You can opt in or you can opt out, and you are largely paying for it in some, even if you take a Pell Grant, if you take a Pell Grant and then you don't attend school, you owe that money back. So right. the only reason you get even sort of what's considered free, in quotes, money for school, meaning that you're going to school. And so that's a big difference right there. Then beyond that, you know, the, the other large difference is, is that, you know, in high school, they have um, individualized education plan meetings. Those meetings are not, you know, they're done by other people, and then the student is invited to them. Mm-hmm. Whereas in higher education, the student is the one who um, is typically reaching out or connecting to us. Right. Sometimes we'll get a name of our student, and they'll say, hey, will you contact the student? Or we get lists from admissions, and then we contact the student. Uh, that's, that's different, right? So if a right. student expresses interest in our services, we'll go ahead and 
uh, send them information, how to contact us, things like that. So I think that's a little bit different. You know, the teachers are not, or our instructors, professors are not required to um, make sure you're using your accommodations as an example. It's completely up to you. Right, right. And that's another important thing that I wanted to address too was that just because you have accommodations doesn't mean you have to use them if you don't feel like you need them in a certain class. It's not like an all or nothing. Uh, I definitely had semesters where I was like, yeah, I don't really need accommodations. I had a psych or a physics class that was really basic for the elementary education program. And they did testing in the classroom, but it was like a group test. Um, so I was like, yeah, I don't really need, and that was the only class I had tested in that uh, semester for obvious reasons. Um, but, um, I, yeah, so like that semester I didn't use it. So I, I just wanted to make sure at some point in this conversation that I noted that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's true. Uh, how does a student, uh, who feels like they could use the Office of ODE establish accommodations in, um, with your office? Yeah, so the simplest way to um, get connected to our office is to uh, either, for an initial appointment, would be to email us, mm-hmm. call the number, our front desk number, or mm-hmm. to physically come in and schedule. So you can schedule with us all three of those ways. There's also an online portal mm-hmm. uh, that's now up and running that allows students to do that too, and it's called Accommodate, and it's on our website. Do- so okay. those are the best ways to get connected to us is either phone, email, um, physically coming in, or um, signing up online. That's cool. Do you know if, are you aware if other higher education institutions use that app as well, the Accommodate app? Yes, many of them do. Uh, That's great. I have never heard of that. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, many of them do. Yeah, they use Accommodate with another system, I think. Uh, I think it's called Clockwork, but I'm not, no, I'm not sure, but there's another one as well. Oh. Cool. Um, can students change their accommodations based on their needs? We kind of already talked about that, but, um, or does a student have the right to not use the accommodations if they feel like it's unnecessary for a certain class? Uh, I guess we already kind of touched on that, but. Uh, so students can use or refuse an accommodation at any point. That's per law. Mm-hmm. And then also with the computer system now, the accommodate computer system, uh, some students can, they can print, like, so let's say a student has uh, three different types of accommodations in their letter. Right, that letter of verification that we write. Yes. And it might be extended testing time, um, textbooks in audio format, and additional rest breaks in class. Uh, so what that student only needs, the extended testing time for three out of four classes. They can just mm-hmm. select um, extended testing time in the letter and then generate a letter that just includes that. Okay. And list out all three. But students okay. typically are fine with using the one letter and not having to do that each semester, but they could if they wanted to. Right, right. That makes sense. That's really cool. Um, how did your office communicate with the professors about the expectations of following ADA com- accommodations? Is there any workshops or uh, seminars that they have to attend? Or I guess, how, how are they informed on their students with disabilities? Yeah, rights? so this is an area where I think we, we need to continuously grow. And so we go to, um, you know, new faculty orientation. Okay. Um, every, and then we do provide some workshops uh, but a lot of times it's by request. And so if a department wants us to come in and talk to their faculty members, we do. And then beyond that, it's individualized. So um, 
is struggling with a faculty member or a faculty member struggling with an accommodation, they reach out to us. Mm-hmm. So those are the ways that we do it right now. We have had uh, training programs in the past. Um, they were somewhat well attended, or I shouldn't say somewhat well attended. Mm-hmm. They were okay attendance wise. Okay. And so we ultimately, we were putting in so much more effort to have them that it really just made sense to um, offer those things on sort of like on a case-by-case basis rather than put together trainings around them. That No, that makes sense because, and I think that that shows initiative on that professor's part too, that they want to know. I guess that kind of leads into my next question um, about how um, you may, oh, wait, hold on, sorry. How do you make sure the professors and other staff members are following those guidelines, and what does a student do if they feel like those rights have been violated? Yeah, and so on the most part, the way that we make sure about it is we write that letter of verification, give it to the student. It's got all the legal language in it. The student provides that to the instructor, and then we go from there, right? Right. So but we don't necessarily check. And so then if the way, the way that we mostly know that something is not working out is the student contacts us and says, hey, this doesn't seem right to me. You know, what, what should I do here? How do we work this out? And then at that point, we'll get involved. And it's called engaging in the interactive process. And okay. So then we're, we're doing that with the professor, which is kind of just a fancy way of saying we're working with the student and the professor towards um, what is going to be a reasonable accommodation, how to get there. And a lot of times there's education and training happen on both parts. The student is learning okay, these are my rights, this is how I ask for what I need. And then the instructor is also learning, okay, this is my responsibility in terms of the ADA. So a lot of it still happens on a one-on-one basis, but I would like to see that shift at some point. And to a more um, larger conversation? Yes, yeah, and something that's considered more just training, just off the bat, yeah. That's great. Uh, Okay, I guess to wrap up this episode, do you have any last um, piece of it, do you have any piece of it, advice or any tips for individuals who are working into higher education but are kind of concerned that their disability might hinder their experience? Yeah, you know, if you are admitted to the University of Montana or the Missoula College, you are considered qualified to be here. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to know about admissions. If you are fully admitted, then the university has stated that you are qualified to be here. And then we go from there. So the advice I would have is if you're concerned about it, like from a disability perspective, you know, can I do this? Do I have the, the ability to do this? If you meet admission criteria, then arguably you do. Mm. Right? Right. Now, it may be that you meet admission criteria and then um, sign up but never show up, never come in and see us or, you know, come in and meet with us. And that would be for whatever reason. Right? We don't necessarily need to know the reason, but that would be the next step in putting accommodations in place. Okay. So, you know, it's a little bit of work for the person because they've got to schedule an appointment, they've got to come in and tell us what's going on, and then we put accommodations in place. But it shouldn't be too too long or too lofty. That makes sense. Yeah, and that kind of nice and clean cut. And I kind of just wanted to do this episode so that people knew how to navigate that because I don't think that information's out there. Uh, as much as people think, you know, people think it is, you know, some people just don't know, especially if you're coming back from being out of school for so long. Right. Yes. Well, that's really great. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for coming on the podcast. I learned a lot and um, it was a joy to have you, a joy to have you on. Thank you.
Oh, thank you so much, Abby. I really appreciate the invitation, and I appreciate talking with you, and I, I think this podcast sounds fantastic, so great work on this. Thank you. Okay, um, I hope you guys have a great week, and I will see you soon.